Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Fíjate el espacio, Martín Odegaard para Saca, 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 dentro del área, Saca, ¡qué golazo! ¡Gol, gol, 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 gol! ¡Del Arsenal, Bucayo, Saca, qué golazo! Del equipo de Arteta, como tocó de izquierda a derecha, Martín Odegaard tenía el pase fácil, pero dijo, ¿para qué darlo fácil si lo puedo dar por el medio? Apertura para Saca y el golazo con la derecha, llega el tercero para el Arsenal. is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra as always. With James from Gunnerblog. James, a very goodly morning to you. Goodly morning, Andrew. They keep coming. They certainly do. They certainly do. Although- I like this 2024. Yeah? It's been a good year so far for football. I mean, is it too simplistic, too reductive to give all the credit for our recent form to sprinkly salt meat wanker. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what's in the sauce that he put on the stuff? What's in the sauce? Yeah. Something in the sauce guys. We don't know what he's serving there. Maybe it is worth those ludicrous prices. After all, if this is the effect Mm. that eating (laughs) his food can have, they need to make him the new club chef. (laughs) Imagine Jesus. You know, or at least give him like a sort of restaurant and club level. Didn't Raymond Blanc have one of those fancy eatery within the Emirates Stadium? Yeah, along with what Bob Nando's, he had one as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Famous chicken chef. Get sprinkly salt. Meat Meat wanker. wanker. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's only, you know, it's been a long time coming since Danny Welbeck first referenced him with that celebration. You know? That was the first time that man entered my consciousness. Same, same. And now 
here we are many Thanks years later. Thanks very much, Danny Welbeck. Yeah. It is good, though. It is good. I'm enjoying this this Arsenal renaissance. Can we call mm. it that? The renaissance arc of this season? After, you know, that, that difficult spell around Christmas time, we've come through it. We had our break. We got our magic meat. And <laughs> and now we're... That renaissance-inspired artwork on the outside of the stadium. Yeah. <laughs> it's all part of the plan. Yeah, I don't know. Five five wins on the bounce, isn't it? Um, yeah. I, I was reading my colleague at the Athletic, Jordan Campbell, said six was the best we managed last season. So we're, we're close to that in terms of form and consistency. But the, the other side of that coin were some slightly frightening numbers that in City's title-winning seasons, they have reeled off 18, 14, 15, 12 and 12 consecutive wins. You know, that is the reality of how you win titles, though. Mm-hmm. You know, the the. do you remember the... Of course you do, but you remember the 97-98 season. Absolutely, yeah. When so that was a dozen odd wins, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was, was it 10, 11 in a row, something like that, where, you know, we... we we were behind and then we put this run together and overhauled Manchester United, including, you know, a very big win uh, at Old Trafford. That uh, that goal that we scored there, which um, went a long way to, uh, that was a real six-pointer of a goal, you know. But mm-hmm. you do need those kinds of runs. I was only thinking about that during the week, you know. We sort of got used to how inevitable Manchester City were, but... You know, you either don't lose for an entire season or you need like a 10, 11, 12 game run of wins to sort of put you in the kind of position that you need to be in to to win a title. But, you know, I think what we've seen certainly from this team since um, the break, all jokes aside, is a team that is absolutely displaying its title credentials you know because we had that little thing didn't we where we're top at christmas and everyone was like oh arsenal are top at christmas can they go on and win the league and then there were those bad results and everyone was like, well they've blown it it's all over now and now we've you know come back bounce back and these five wins have been not just um not just wins where you've got the points and ultimately that is the main thing but i think they're they're there's been something of a message to these performances and these results. You know, obviously you beat Liverpool and that's big because they're they're a title rival, but five past Palace, five past Burnley, six past West Ham, the kind of results that like if a Liverpool or Manchester City had had achieved, people would be saying, Whoa, this is the mark of champions. These are the kind of results that show they've got what it takes to go all the way, etc., etc., etc. And I think that's what Arsenal have done. And people might want to say, well, it's because the opposition are poor. You know, we've made them look poor because we have been very, very, very good. And I think it's, you know, to come back from the doubts that were sown by those uh, performances, you know, the, the West Ham game, the Fulham game. In such emphatic style, I think is huge credit to the players and the manager. Yeah, and look, we have played some poor teams in this run, but we've also played Liverpool and beat Liverpool. So, you know, I don't think it's accurate to kind of write this recent run off in that way. Plus 19, we've put on the goal difference in those five games, which is quite extraordinary. Um, Completely transformed our goal difference position. Mm -hmm. 
And I, yeah, I mean, in the context of the title race, I mean, I, I had an eye on the Liverpool game at Brentford, you know, and I looked at that as a game, Brentford away, could be tricky. Um, they had a couple of injuries during the match. I was thinking, oh, you know, could, could Brentford get something there? Liverpool ran away with it in the end. Yeah, I think Ivan, one. Ivan Tony wasn't able to manifest anything positive from, no. from that game. But, Funny. <laughs> but that was a quite impressive result, I mm. thought. And, you know, arguably put a bit of pressure on Arsenal that afternoon. But, you know, we went and annihilated Burnley. Um, and although this isn't the Burnley of old, this isn't Sean Dyche's Burnley, this isn't the Burnley to which I think a lot of Arsenal fans developed a degree of loathing. Mm -hmm. I think going there and hammering them is still thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I don't even have a great deal of, of, you know, antipathy for Burnley or, or anything like that. It's, it's just the enjoyment of winning a game five nil, mm. you know, much more like, of course, if you beat a, you know, fucking Spurs or something like that, there's something extra special, but I just think the the dominance that we showed from start to finish in this game was was so impressive, and it was quite clear. I think in in the very early stages, what Burnley were going to try and do was impose themselves or try and impose themselves physically, right? Because mm -hmm. they do try to press. They did get a few tackles in early on. I think it was maybe five or six minutes in and, and there was a guy booked. Was it uh, Ramsey? I think it was Ramsey who went off later um, for a foul on Bakayo Saka, fairly heavy foul on Bakayo Saka. But, but such was the start that we made with a very, very good goal as well that that faded away almost straight away. Like it didn't last 10 minutes. Yeah. That physical approach from Burnley, which, you know, I'm sure was part of their game plan. You know, you've Craig Bellamy on the sideline there because Vincent Company was um, you know, uh, suspended because he'd uh, had too many yellow cards. Like, maybe I'm doing him a disservice, but I would imagine that when Craig Bellamy is involved in any kind of coaching and team talk, there is an element of, you know, get stuck in and, you know, be nasty little prick because that's kind of what he was as a player. So sure. I presume he's brought some of that to his coaching. Arming them all with golf clubs. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Especially when there's a Norwegian on the pitch, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, and that you're right. You know, they were a bit physical early on, but it, it's rare in the Premier League that a game is at no point a contest. But I really felt like this about mm. this one. And... I am the most paranoid and neurotic of all Arsenal fans, I suspect. You know, every game going into <laughs> it, I find a reason that we might struggle or it's something to be concerned about. Um, but I was really confident about this particular game and this particular matchup. And yeah, I mean, obviously the early goal helps uh, settle everything, but it was just total dominance, start to finish. Yeah, there were no changes to the starting eleven, obviously. Um, yeah, which I don't think is a big surprise, given that Emil Smith Rowe is the only player who was back uh, from the collection of, of injured players that Mikel Arteta had hinted some of them might be available for the weekend. I wonder if you know the fact that it was. Burnley, the fact that this team is in good form and playing well away from home, um, you allowed him to be perhaps a little more cautious 
with his squad selection, his, his team selection. Um, you don't have to rush anyone back because, you know, as the, the starting 11 against West Ham showed, even if the bench was not particularly uh, exciting, that starting 11 is more than capable of doing the job. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, also, there's a very important game next week in midweek. I mean, there's three games this week, right? Obviously, mm. you've got Porto in midweek and then Newcastle at the weekend. And maybe Arteta felt, well, you know, I might need or, or want some of these guys available for those matches. So if it means holding them back a bit here, so yeah. be it. But really, you couldn't have any arguments. I mean, if he was picking the team on form, on merit, given what they did at West Ham, you know, you couldn't mm-hmm. argue against that starting eleven. Not at all. Not at all. And like we said, they made a very early breakthrough. Fantastic finish this from um, from Martin Odegaard. Ball across from Gabriel Martinelli, which has frustrated fantasy football players everywhere because apparently he wasn't given an assist for this because it took a deflection off a defender. Uh, every week I'm learning new things about um, the rules of the game, what is offside and what isn't offside. But I think credit goes to Martinelli, obviously, for getting the ball across there. And the precision on this finish from from Odegaard is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, uh, Odegaard occasionally draws comparisons with, with Kevin De Bruyne, doesn't he? And I think what De Bruyne has really made his name for is a capacity to to make extremely complex, technically difficult things look extraordinarily simple. Mm. And I think that's exactly what Odegaard does with this finish. You know, the control, the execution on the shot is superb. And he, he, he sort of barely seems to have to make any effort to do it. It makes it look so straightforward. Um, yeah, an amazing goal. And, uh, you know, he scored... I think it was at that end, didn't he? Uh, last time we played there, a free kick. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, got us off the mark and set the tone, I suppose. Yeah, 100%. You know, the the early goal is a conversation we've had quite a lot uh, mm-hmm. this season and what it does for, um, you know, for your own confidence. Also what it does to the opposition. Like you can imagine Burnley, keep it tight, lads. You know, maybe course, we can yeah. nick a goal from a set piece and, you know, if we... If we go 1-0 up, you know, they might start to get a bit flustered, et cetera, et cetera. But what that goal did was just uh, put us completely and utterly in charge. Um, Like, it wasn't a half. I don't think the first half was one absolutely filled with with obvious chances, but Arsenal's dominance was was pretty clear. The one I suppose I'm thinking of was around a half hour, was it, maybe when... um, when Trossard, Saka played the ball across for, for Trossard, he had a fresh air kick. Um, was maybe the most obvious chance in that first half. Yeah, um, there was another one where Trossard was just offside, wasn't it? When Saka played him through and Trafford actually stopped him going round him, but mm. he was just off there. Um, I know the one you mean where, where I think they looked for Havertz in the box. He held it up and Saka played it across goal, but Trossard... Missed his kick. Uh, you know, he obviously got his goal in the end, Trossard, but I mm-hmm. probably feel like he could have had a, at least a couple on the day. Um, but, you know, he was obviously involved in us winning the penalty, which came just before half time. I mean, that was an interesting thing about this game. I thought the timing of Arsenal's goals, you couldn't hope for better, really. Mm. You know, immediately from kickoff, scored four minutes in, about five minutes before half time. And then obviously Burnley changed it up at the break and we immediately 
emphasised our superiority by getting the third goal. Yeah, uh, We talk about timing a lot in terms of sort of the broader context of the season and peaking at the right moments, but it's the same is true within games. You know, are you performing at those critical periods of games? And I think we did that really well on the day. Yeah, the penalty uh, came, I think it was uh, Havertz played the ball through to Trossard, there wasn't a huge amount of contact, but it was a really clumsy challenge, wasn't it? I think you yeah. can't really have any complaints if you go in like that. If contact is minimal, there's still contact, and it's the the sort of lunginess of, of the tackle um, that makes, uh, makes it a penalty. Martin Odegaard stepped up and held on to the ball, and it looked like he was going to take it. There has been a little bit of variation at times w- with penalty takers, this season, but Bakayo Saka uh, then took over, mm-hmm. scored. Maybe not the most convincing uh, penalty you will ever see. I think, you know, it's one of those uh, for a goalkeeper, you can't really view it as a mistake, but I think he will be a bit disappointed that he didn't get more to it. Yes, I agree with that. I think when he watches that back, uh, the goalkeeper will feel. He, he he perhaps you know could have kept that one out. There's a moment's hesitation, isn't there? And to Saka's credit, he sort of creates that with mm. a little pause in his run up. Um, but if Trafford commits to his dive, I think he keeps that one out. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't the penalty that has ended my uh, <laughs> you know anxiety about Saka and spot kicks. Let's say, but credit to him, he tucked it away. And yeah, it's another one. He's only ever missed one, James. So I know, I know. I've I've. Uh, I've created this in my mind, but there you go. No, I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean. Did um, he miss one in pre-season? Is that partly why I'm thinking of it? Did he miss one in the States on the tour, a non-competitive one? Um, I couldn't tell you, to okay. be honest. Okay. Even though well, I saw I, the I'm games, just to... I'm just, you know, I sort of put them out of your mind because they're, you know, I don't have enough space left in my brain to think about the details of, of preseason games. Sure, sure. I, I think I think the space in my mind is largely, predominantly filled with that Euro 2021. But mm. he keeps scoring them, so fair play to him. He does. You mentioned Burnley making a change. Goodmanson came on for Amdouni. Um, I only it's quite men- an interesting change, that yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, but I only mention him because of what was happening at corners, where he was instructed to look after Ben White. And there was a bit of sort of pushing and shoving and what have you. But there was a really funny one where the ref, I think, had already had a word with the two players. We had a corner and Amdouni was just pulling Ben White all over the place. He was grabbing him and then threw himself to the ground and the ref gave Burnley a free kick. Mm. It's kind of mad, but, uh, you know, I suppose to their credit, if you want to say that, Burnley at least identified Ben White as a, as a an irritant, if you like, from corners who needed to be dealt with in some way, unlike some teams we faced previously who have just left him alone to, to wreak havoc, if you like. Yeah, they sought to deal with it, but, you know, still found it difficult. Obviously, I know we didn't score directly from a corner in this game I, I think I'm right in saying that I do lose track because we scored so many goals but I have to say I really enjoyed maybe particularly because it was against Burnley every time we got a set piece you did feel that sense of threat and you felt mm. their anxiety and you know Trafford was getting crowded by two or three players 
And the thing is, there was a time 10 years ago where we kind of scoffed at set pieces. You know, they were sort of uh, portrayed often as kind of like a tool of poorer teams, you know, mm. the likes of Burnley maybe. But what you forget is it's actually really fun <laughs> having a team <laughs> who are like really tall and really good on set pieces. Uh, when it's your team, it's great. And... You know, I played Sunday League and like a lot of Sunday League teams, that was kind of all we were really, you know, long throws and corners, but you loved it. It was brilliant. And when it's your guys <laughs> in there being the bullies, it's great. I mean, do you think to some extent that changes the perception of, of Arsenal? Like we're obviously a very technical team and we've seen technical Arsenal teams before, but what, what Mikel Arteta has done is, is married – uh, technicality with physicality in a way yeah. that maybe we haven't seen quite as much. And the idea that was prevalent when, when other teams, you know, I hate to invoke uh, the name of Stoke on this sure. podcast, but, you know, they were a team who maximized their their size and set-piece ability time and time and time again. Rory DeLapp would just fucking fling the ball in, and they had gigantic guys in there, and we were, you know, it's kind of painful to admit it, but we were a bit meek, a bit mm -hmm. bullied, a bit shoved around too easily, right? And nobody likes that. You know, you can say, okay, my team isn't the biggest team in the world, but you can still be physical. You can still stand up for yourself. But I think the, a, a perception grew about Arsenal, um, which I don't think was always entirely fair, but I do think when it comes to certain set-piece situations, you know, it, when you have a goalkeeper who's, you know, not the most dominant and, and we didn't have a dominant goalkeeper back then, you know, we were bullied a bit. And now it is completely and utterly the other way around. And I much prefer this. Definitely. And I think it informs how teams prepare, what they emphasise, what they focus on. You know, if you have a clear vulnerability, people are going to look to exploit it. And this set-piece ability is, you know, it's at both ends of the pitch, right? We're talking about the attacking threat, but, you know, David Rye has been excellent, come off his line and collecting stuff. All those players we spoke about, Gabriel, Saliba, you know, they help us out defensively. Of course, that's their primary job. So, yeah, I, I think it's I, – yeah, I, I just sort of really noticed it during this game that every time we got a corner, I was kind of uh, metaphorically or sometimes literally kind of on my feet thinking, <laughs> here, here we, we go. go. Yeah. yeah, we might get something. Let's do this even. Um, Let's do this even, rather, yeah. than, rather than here we go. So, look, 2-0 at halftime. Mm -hmm. Burnley's team talk had to be about, again, keep it tight. Don't give anything away. You know, try and nick one, and then maybe we can, you know, put a bit of pressure on them and, and get another goal. But what what I've really enjoyed about these last few weeks is the kind of ruthlessness of Arsenal, where you go, oh, two 0 that's quite good. But rather than it's two 0 in the seventieth minute or seventy fifth minute, and then they get a goal, and you spend fucking fifteen twenty minutes panicking and nervous and on the edge of your seat as you hang on for a 2-1 win, or as we saw against Fulham, don't hang on uh, to take all three points, that there has been this desire and ability and efficiency which makes games um, impossible, more or less, for the opposition to, to get back into. And within two minutes of the, the restart, we are 3-0 up 
Um, it was Havertz played the ball to Odegaard. Odegaard with a great pass inside. Bukayo Saka, I mean, you could literally see the defender thinking, I can't let him in on his left foot. I can't let him cut back on his left foot. Yeah. Which allowed him to push the ball onto his right foot and smash it into the roof of the net. A bit like a goal he scored last season. Was it against Everton? I don't remember. At the Emirates Stadium. Is that the one you're Yeah, I of? think so. I think yeah. it was against Everton. Another one that's a right foot near post just roofed it, you know, and the goalkeeper can get nowhere near it. It's a great, a brilliant finish from Saka. It is. It's a really, really excellent finish. I agree with you that you can see the defender uh, show him onto his right foot. And with some wingers, that would work. You know, if it was uh, maybe not an Iron Robin, but someone who's very one-footed, you know, you can push them that way and that's the right decision. The thing about Saka is he's so good, he can go either way and hit it. Uh, Everton at home, I think, is one last season. Uh, Leeds away from home, that was a tighter angle. Um, he's got it in his locker to finish like that on his right foot, especially when he's feeling confident. Mm. I thought he scored the goal of the game. Wow, is it the goal of the game? It was my favourite goal of the game against West Ham. I know Declan Rice scored a brilliant individual goal, but I loved the way Saka came inside and buried it in the bottom corner. Oh, yeah. And here at Burnley, this was my favourite goal of the game. And, and you know, it's the other way, right? It's the other route, go mm. on the outside, hit it with the right foot. Um, we, we are kind of running out of superlatives for, for Bukayo Saka, but we, we're going to need to come up with some because hopefully we're going to get so much more from him. Yes. I don't know what more there is to say. We, we talked about him last week and talked about how good he is and talked about his end product and talked about his, you know, the contributions that he's making. Um, I mean, maybe we'll talk in a, in a minute about, you know, the fact that he wasn't on the pitch long enough maybe to, to get his hat trick, which mm. is in some ways you know, a good thing. Um, but you could understand why he might want to stay on and, and get that hat trick. I think Mikel Arteta is just challenging him now. You've got to get your hat trick inside an hour. <laughs> you know, otherwise, yeah. otherwise you're out of here. Um, so, yeah. Well, I think, listen, how many times over the past year, two years, have we spoken about the need to protect him, to give him rest? Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, Arsenal are now in a position where we're controlling games sufficiently to enable us to really do that with it being no risk. Um, I mean, you mentioned that. Can we go there though? I mean, let's just talk about that briefly because I don't know we have to get into it too much, but obviously one of the great things about scoring lots of goals is that it's good for your goal difference. And our goal difference is much better than Manchester City's right at this moment in time which is incredible. And like the last few weeks have been fantastic for that. But the other side of it is that, you know, with players like Saka, with players like maybe Martinelli, like uh, Declan Rice, sometimes you're asking them to give 100% for 100 minutes, maybe more, to win a game of football. And while they are professional athletes and you know there is a there is a benefit to be able to taking these guys off like you're not pushing them for 90 minutes 90 minutes 90 minutes 60 minutes job done off you come 65 minutes whatever it is have a little rest 
And, uh, you know, the timing of this could not be better because we're, you know, going back into the Champions League and it allows you to have fresher legs, less fatigue, and hopefully, you know, that works um, for your midweek games and for your weekend games. So it is, you know, a really important thing. Like if it's 2-0 against Burnley, maybe you don't make those changes. But if it's 3-0, it's 4-0, it's really easy to make them, even if, you know, you can identify a gap or a gulf between the first team players and some of the subs that come on, you're not putting yourself in any danger or any risk. Yeah, that's it. You know, there's a difference between asking some of those subs to win you a game uh, and asking them to basically help you coast at three or four goals to the good, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, And I think in this period of the season that we're literally on the precipice of right now, being able to rest players and give them those few minutes to recover, I think it's going to be especially important because, you know, the Champions League restarts for us this week. Um, and I think we all have aspirations of it continuing mm-hmm. for another couple of rounds at least. So, yeah, it's going to be critically important. So there then transpired a series of events in which Leandro Trossard looked like he was wearing wellies. Yes. Um, <laughs> like... The, the the chances he had i mean the the one where the one where martinelli um intercepted it and then got into the box i think he got tackled but won it back and played a really great pass while sitting on his arse uh, mm. that that should have been a goal um and you're looking at it going how has he missed these chances mm. I know. Well, I, I mean, I've spoken many times about the quality of his finishing. I think mm. generally he's very good off both feet, but it wasn't necessarily his day in front of goal. And you could see the frustration writ across his face, to be honest. I mean, I, I know we're speaking about bringing players off, but I strongly had the sense that guy did not want to get off that pitch without a goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially with some of the chances that had come and gone. And I, And I think he probably knows that, you know, what's he doing at the moment? He's playing up top. He's combining brilliantly with Havertz and helping Saka and Martinelli and Odegaard get into the game. But actually what's kind of separating him from Jesus, I think at this point in time, is the goals. Like when he plays, he scores. Mm. And I I think he probably feels a personal pressure to keep that going. Because I'd say, you know, his place in the starting eleven is maybe more vulnerable than certain others. You know, he's not a nailed-on starter in the way that a Saka or a Martinelli or an Odegaard is. Mm. So I think there's probably a, a... He's putting pressure on himself to keep keep this run going and keep putting the ball in the back of the net. So, yeah, I was pleased for him when he eventually, eventually got one in. When he eventually got one in. And it was just pressure, relentless pressure from Arsenal as well. I think, uh, you know, the ball was in the box. Havertz was there, came back off a defender. Uh, Havertz got out of the way very quickly and nicely. Um, uh, Trossard finished with his left foot, so he did get that goal. I think you're right. You know that. You know he knows he has to rise to the challenge a little bit, um, and he, he's doing that very, very well. I mean, before that, there was that um, that unfortunate uh, injury for Aaron Ramsey, Burnley, mm. Aaron Ramsey, where there was a tackle by Odegaard, and you could see on the replay. The minute that replay happened, it was like, oh, God, a poor guy, you know. He looked uh, 
he looked in a lot of distress and um, I don't know that they've diagnosed it yet, but you would fear the worst if you saw that happen to an Arsenal player. You'd absolutely fear the worst in terms of the, the injury that they've sustained. So, yeah, um, pure bad luck as well, really. It was, I mean. yeah. Like, you know, there isn't, um, there's not a dirty bone in, in Odegaard's body. It was a challenge. And um, yeah, he just landed awkwardly. I hope it, I hope it's not as bad as it looks, but um yeah, you'd feel yeah. And, and and to be honest, that um, I think it was interesting because like that effectively sort of ki- completely killed the game. You know, it's sort of like three 0 Saka. Well, that's it. The result's over. And then that I think any remaining life or enthusiasm in the crowd was obviously sapped from them by that injury. But mm. what I quite liked is that Arsenal didn't allow that to deter them too much you yeah. know they kept pressing on they kept the intensity up and they got themselves another couple of goals yeah that's it I mean those stoppages can take the life completely out of a game and yeah. maybe they did to Burnley and I think the game the game was already won from an Arsenal perspective but when you see somebody suffer a serious injury you know it can be can be really difficult to to raise yourself again the Trossard goal came in what the 66th minute um I think I think that's an interesting point isn't it because Normally, those injuries do just completely take the life out of a game mm. for everybody. But I think it's telling and pertinent that Arsenal kind of maintain some of their intensity after the restart. I think that shows you how driven they were to kind of keep putting the ball in the net and keep building up that goal difference. Yes, for sure. So we made changes. Nelson, Cedric, and Enkedia on White, Saka, and Trossard off, which is the perfect example of what you you know you said a couple of moments ago. Is that these aren't guys who you would bring on to help you win a game, but they're perfectly cromulent when it comes to helping you uh, see out a game. You know, uh, with all with all due respect. Um, then there was the Kai Havertz goal. Yeah, what a yeah. lovely goal. What a lovely goal from an Arsenal perspective. I have to say, absolutely diabolical from a Burnley perspective. I mean, the the most basic errors in terms of defending. But you still got to profit from it. And I thought Havertz took it really well. And even to be making that run, you know, in the 78th minute of a game where you're 4-0 up, Mm. I think shows a his desire, but B, his athleticism as well. You know, I think his, his stamina and his ability to keep going within games, probably covering more ground in this role now than he ever has at any point in his career. Um, yeah, I thought it was a, a really nice goal from his perspective. Yeah, I think he deserved the goal as well. I think he, he did. did, yeah. Because we should probably talk about this a little bit. His movement, he was involved in in most of the goals, I think, in some way. He was there or thereabouts, certainly it was his pass for the penalty, um, his pass to Odegaard for the Saka goal. He was there when the uh, the Trossard goal went in, you know, he was putting pressure on the on the defenders. I think his movement was really, really smart. And I know we've um, finished, not Megan finish, great, and actually um, the throw from Kivior down the line is excellent. Um, you know, Burnley obviously caught napping, um, you know, at that point, uh, the game was gone and they, they'd switched off completely. But I think the Kai Havertz that we're seeing now, when you think back to the Kai Havertz that we st- uh, saw at the start of the season, are almost like two completely different players. Mm. 
And yeah, I, th- I think there's been a marked improvement for sure. One hundred percent. You know, the, the, he looks more settled. He looks more decisive. He looks more physical. Um, you know, there could be countless reasons why the early part of his Arsenal career was was underwhelming. You know, the price tag, the knowledge that he's come from Chelsea, he's got to win people over, and just the reality that sometimes it takes players a little while to get going at a football club. Not everyone can be Declan Rice and hit the ground running 100% from the, the first day they arrive at the club. You know, it can take players a while to get settled in. But when I look at what he's doing, how he's doing it, um, you know, the, he just looks like a completely different player. And mm. I had concerns. I know you had concerns. I'm sure many people listening to this had concerns. I I think there should be more to come from him. I'm not saying he's, you know... Uh, won everybody around or convinced everybody I think he can do more and deliver more and I had a bit of a conversation like this with Lewis on on the preview pod over on Patreon so I was really happy for him to get the goal which you know is is a, a tangible contribution that people can look at and it's on his stats and everything else but but his overall performance and and what he's bringing to the structure of the team at the moment I think is really really interesting that him and Trossard are a sort of slight tactical shift in a way. It's a, it's almost like your classic big man, small man, front two partnership at times. And that is not something I necessarily expected from Mikel Arteta or, or from these two players. And I think, you know, the opposition teams didn't expect it either. I don't think anybody has quite come to terms with the way that Trossard and Havertz are operating on the pitch and the way that they combine and the areas in which they combine. Like if you look at the if you look at the penalty, mm. he's in the centre forward position. Odegaard plays a ball in, Havertz knocks it off to Trossard, who runs beyond the defender, the clumsy challenge, bang, penalty. The chance that we talked about Trossard missing. Uh, where he had the fresh air kick. Again, something very similar. Havertz in the centre forward position, lays it off to Saka. Saka played the ball across and, and Trossard should probably score from there. And this is different. This is a you know something different in the front three, front five, whatever you want to call it. And maybe it's only been there since the, um, the trip to Dubai. It's a, a tactical tweak that they made. But it's been very, very effective. And I think, you know, Havertz and Trossard and the manager deserve credit for finding a way to not confuse the opposition, but to set up the team in a way that people probably weren't expecting. And it's been really, really effective. Yeah, I mean, we've spoken about this a few times before, but it feels like the speed at which other teams learn about what you do in the Premier League has accelerated dramatically mm. in the last few years. You know, it, it felt like, I don't know, a decade ago that, you know, you could have a playing style and if a team had played a team last week who played differently, you could catch them out the week after. And it feels like now the kind of the rate of evolution is so much quicker with all the analysis that goes on, with all the data that's available feels like teams get wise to what you do in the Premier League very, yeah. very quickly yeah. these days. And so even within a single season, there is a constant need to evolve. And some of those evolutions happen by design and others, there's an element of chance involved. 
you know, you set your team up a certain way because players are absent yeah. or unavailable. And it does feel like Arsenal have, you know, by accident or by design, a little bit of both, most likely, found a formula right now that is very, very difficult for the opposition to get to grips with. And they've not yet got to grips with. Um, and it's kind of propelled us through some of these recent performances. And who knows how much longer we'll get out of it because it's not just Trossard and Havertz. I agree with you. It, you know, it's almost that kind of classic front two and it's classic for a reason because it worked for a very long time. You know, a guy who can be a target and someone who can move off him. Um, but it, there's also implications in the midfield. Mm-hmm. You know, Odegaard operating, I think, a little bit deeper and, you know, helping us build up a bit more rather than being on the edge of the box, combining with Saka all the time. Ben White stepping into midfield more, you know, being mm-hmm. a kind of more central player and, and Kivior operating almost as a kind of conventional left back. I mean, on Trossard's goal, he was the guy making the overlapping run, you know, uh, and swinging, yeah. getting, the, getting the cross in from close to the byline. So these are all sort of little tweaks that have happened in this current Arsenal team and the formula is working right now and and other teams have not yet caught up with it so I don't know how much longer we'll get out of it but right now it's working an absolute treat yeah it really is and I I wanted to ask you because I know you've had some concerns about Kivior yeah but he's looked a lot more settled in the last couple of weeks we're not asking him to do the Zinchenko role and I don't think Ben White is necessarily doing the right-sided Zinchenko either. I know he is drifting inside a little bit more, but I don't think it's quite as pronounced as as that. Mm-hmm. But defensively, um, he looks more assured. On the ball, he looks more assured. We're not taking him out of his comfort zone. Like there was, um, there was a really interesting quote from Arteta, maybe after the – what game did he really struggle in? The Fulham game, was it? Yeah, I think and so. I think, you know, half time. Yeah, and look, everybody struggled in the Fulham game. Nobody played well that day, individually or collectively. So uh, I think it's fair to, to point that out. But it might have been after that game where Arteta said something about, you know, my job is to get the best out of the players, to put them where they're comfortable, not to ask them to do things that they can't do. And that has sparked a bit of a change in how he's used... Kivior, because Zinchenko has not been available uh, as much. Tommy Asu still uh, not available after the uh, after the Asian Cup. So, yeah, it's. I'm not saying he's he's thrived on the simplicity of what he has to do, but certainly uncomplicating his role uh, has allowed him to look a lot more uh, embedded within this team. Definitely, I think it suits him a lot better. Um, I know on paper. You know, he was a guy who had played in midfield and potentially could have that kind of 360 mm. awareness that you need to to do the sort of Zinchenko role. But it, on the pitch, it never quite looked like it. And maybe it was just too much responsibility for a player that I think we should remember is still really young, and for, especially for a defender, mm-hmm. and relatively inexperienced. I know he's played in Poland. I know he's played in Serie A, but he didn't spend a great deal of time in Italy. Um, and he's not someone who came through an academy, a big European club in a major league. He's someone who's experienced quite a dramatic 
rise in yeah. his career. And I think the Premier League, you know, we all talk about the strength of the Premier League. I don't think he'll have played at a level quite like that, you know, with that sort of intensity before. And so I think maybe the degree of responsibility that a role as complex and nuanced as Zinchenko's put on him mm. was maybe too great. Um, I think when you're bringing someone into a team, a new club, a new country, make things comfortable for them, make things easier for them. And to his credit as well, it's not like he's playing in his favourite position. It's not like he's playing left centre-back. He's still a bit out of his comfort zone. Yeah, he's yeah. playing as a left-back. You know, yeah. That's not what he is. But yeah, I think obviously he's looked a lot more settled and I'm pleased for him because I think I can imagine that prior to Christmas, he'd sort of struggled to feel really part of the group mm. and part of the team. And I think this little run will have done wonders for him in that respect. Can we talk about Mikel Arteta's other big, big tactical shift, which is essentially to make the goalkeeper redundant? <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I, I'm slightly half kid here, but there is, you know, uh, a nugget of truth in there and that David Raya has not had a a great deal to do in these five games. Not really. I think the, what's the stats? Um, is it two shots on target? Uh, who had Yeah, it? there was, was some mad stat I saw Harvey yesterday. Downs. Which is that Harvey Downs. Harvey had it. Let me, I'll look it up here. And One I saw was that United um, allowed more XG on their goal in the single game against Luton, uh, maybe even a single half, than Arsenal have over the last five games. <laughs> right. Yeah, this one is from uh, Harvey Downs of, of Opta at Harvey Downs 92, who says, Arsenal have faced just two shots on target across their last three Premier League games. Uh, Luis Diaz uh, for Liverpool, Mohamed Kudus for West Ham, and none versus Burnley. It's the fewest we faced across a three-game span in the competition since November-December 2003. Mm. So, you know, the the focus, of course, is on what we're doing in the final third and the goals we're scoring. And, you know, we all understand how important those are. And, you know, particularly off the back of a run where it didn't look like we could buy a goal. But Arteta always talks about being efficient in both boxes. Mm -hmm. And we are being super efficient defensively at this moment in time. And, and you know, you have to, I think, draw some kind of parallel between how good we've been defensively and how good we are offensively. There is a platform for these offensive players to express themselves and maybe take a few chances and, and for the team to play a bit higher up the pitch, knowing that defensively we are just so solid right now. Yeah. I mean, very early on in this season, um, I remember saying that I felt Arteta's uh, sort of primary goal with the team this year was the elimination of Jeopardy. And I think that has borne out. He, he basically <laughs> has kind of found ways to so dramatically reduce the opposition's chance of scoring that we're always going to have a pretty good chance of winning a game if we can find a way to put the ball in the net. Mm. We had that little run where we didn't uh, and obviously things went against us. But we, we have been exemplary in that regard. And I think, I think we've actually been 
pretty consistently good with it. I know there were some individual errors, but as a team, as a unit, as a defensive unit, I think we've been mm. the best in the league this season. And I think there's two interesting things to note about it. One is that I think you're right in some respect that the goalkeeper position becomes fairly redundant when it comes to making saves. But I think we need to give David Raya his due as well in that, you know, I think his style is part of reducing and eliminating that threat. I was going to ask you, like, do you think, uh, you know, as much as I was joking about the goalkeeping uh, position being redundant, but do you think that, that Raya is essentially the blueprint goalkeeper for for this kind of thing where you know he will keep the ball moving his his use of the ball um uh, with his feet and with his hands is such that you know he's he's not as involved as um you know other goalkeepers but you know he 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 fits this team and this style quite perfectly yeah i mean look he doesn't give the ball away with his feet he very rarely uh, fails to, to get it when he comes for crosses either. And so between those two things alone, you are significantly reducing your opposition's, you know, opportunity of scoring. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's still probably true that if you said, right, there's a shot from 25 yards that's flying towards the top corner, you know, you've got to pick a goalkeeper to fling themselves at it and make a save for your life, mm -hmm. I'd probably pick Aaron Ramsdale. But if you're asking me to pick the goalkeeper who's going to contribute to the team in a way that means you're likely to keep a clean sheet, you can't argue against David Raya what now, no. right now and what he's doing. No, no, no. Um, so he's, he's performing at a very high level. And I think it does mean he's making less saves, but he has a part in the fact there are less saves to make. The other thing I think that's really interesting about the sort of defensive side is the degree of variety we might soon have in that part of the pitch. You know, this back four, White, Saliba, Gabriel, Kivior, certainly uh, reminiscent of the kind of Man City trend of four mm -hmm. centre-halves. You know, we've seen Ake and Guardiol playing at left-back in not dissimilar ways to what Kivior's doing right now. Uh, but when you think Tomiyasu to come back, Timber hopefully to come back, Zinchenko, the flexibility and variety that we could have, yes. maybe even Thomas Partey in that defensive unit, it would, would be quite something. I mean, there's there's sort of an element of if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it in my mind right now. But I know exactly what you mean. And I think there's been such a lot of talk about um, you know, injured players and like, how does Gabriel Jesus get back in the team? He gets back in the team um, because of the variety that you mentioned, because of the ability to do uh, something a little bit different. And that's true if we have Zinchenko fit, if we have Tommy Asu fit, if we get Timber back. Uh, who else is injured? There's got to be more than... Well, Vieira. Uh, Vieira, yeah. You know, so th there's, the, there's the scope and the need for... Uh, the full extent of this squad to be used between now and, and May, you know, if we're going to keep going on two fronts, like I don't think, you know, every week is going to be as simple as the last few weeks have been, you know, and there are going to be games that are a struggle that will require our bench in order to either win them or see them out. 
And the sooner we get all of these guys back, uh, the better, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'm not too invested in who plays every week, um, you know, as, as a sort of a talking point more than let's have those guys because we're going to need that depth. Yeah. And, and you know, I said I felt that Arteta's priority was to eliminate jeopardy. If I had to come up with what was number two on that list, it would have been be less predictable. And I think these options mm-hmm. are what enable us to do that. You know, we spoke about the necessary rate of evolution, sometimes game by game in this Premier League, being able to do something different, to surprise, to innovate. And those options are what enable us to potentially do that moving forward if we can get some of these guys back and available in the squad. All right. Well, look, anything else to touch on in part one beyond the uh, the obvious sad Saturday evening that the people of Cockermouth would have had? I know. Choked up, they would have been. But, uh, yeah, no, not really. I mean, I, I suppose we should talk about the context of the title race. Man City dropped points, you'd have to say, at home to mm. Chelsea. I fully expected them to annihilate. Uh, Chelsea and had Erling Haaland remembered his shooting boots, they might well have done. But um, turns out even he's capable of an off day in front of goal. So I think any time City drop points, it's just going to give you that little bit of hope, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And like you said, you know, Liverpool going out and winning in the early game, it does put a bit of pressure on you. It doesn't change, you know, what you need to do. But, you know, you know that... um, you know that the the team in front of you has extended the lead to five points. It's always going to be there in the back of your mind. I think uh, the way that Arsenal dealt with that, and then in turn maybe just you know put a bit of pressure on Manchester City because you know twenty one goals in five games conceding twice, like that's got to be in their the back of their head as well. Sure, like you know they're obviously the favourites for the title. I would say. Um, because they've been there, done that, and, and all that. But, you know, you start putting a few little doubts in, in people's minds when you play as well as we have over the last few weeks. Um, you know, people start to take you more seriously, and it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see, you know, how that transpires in, in the weeks ahead. Absolutely. All right. Okay, well, let's take a little break here. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog, at Arsblog, and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Would you like to go first? Uh, yeah, I'll go first. Okay. If that's all right. Um, this is from Scott the Bot on Discord. And Scott says, Is it a coincidence that in our recent high scoring games, Gabriel Jesus has been absent. Yeah. You're going to go with yeah? I'm yeah. going to go with yeah in, in as much as, you know, we talked in the in the first half about the Havertz-Trossard thing and how effective that has been. Um, But I think as well, this is a team that's, that's really found some form. Did... Did Jesus play in the Crystal Palace game? Uh, I, I honestly remember. can't remember. It. Yeah, same. Um, Did he play? Just going to have a look now. Uh, boom, 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 boom. He did. He started that game. Yeah. And we won 5 0. Now, to be fair, there was a little gloss applied to that scoreline very late on with, with Gabriel Martinelli. But Jesus went off in the 81st minute. It was. Uh, 3-0 to Arsenal at that point. Mm. Um, did he play against Forrest? He did play it against Forrest. Scored against Forrest, by the way. Opened the scoring against Nottingham Forrest. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't there for the Liverpool game and hasn't played since then. But yeah, I think it probably is a coincidence, although the players that have been brought in have stepped up and really made the most of their chances. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't see. I, see, I, I would way. say, I don't know if it is coincidence, but I don't think that necessarily makes Jesus suddenly a bad player. If that makes any sense. There's a cause like, and correlation aspect yeah, to this discussion. Like I, I think his absence has enabled Arsenal to kind of, find a formula that is really clicking right now. Mm. Um, but these are particular types of games and, you know, I, I think there are others that maybe Jesus would be the right player for. I, I mean, sort of secondary question to this that I'd be fascinated to know your answer to, and I'm not sure anyone answered it, asked it in so many words. What do you think is the difference between an Arsenal team that couldn't put the ball in the back of the net towards the end of last year and now is suddenly, you know, seemingly scoring for fun. How do you explain that? I... I do think the the break helped, mm. right? I think it was a chance to reset. It was like almost like turning over a new leaf in a way. Wipe the slate clean, go again, Put that behind you. They've obviously implemented some new things tactically, which we've already talked about. Um, But I also think that that little run where we couldn't score and the results weren't good is sort of anomalous to to our season. Mm -hmm. I think we had a blip in form, a really bad blip. And I think it was over analyzed because of the timing of it and because there wasn't anything else going on 
you know? It was exacerbated by the fact we had a load of time to pour over it, if you like, because we had um, the game against West Ham, the game against Fulham, and then there was like a week of a gap and everyone was talking about how we can't score. And then we had that game against Liverpool where we couldn't score. We had chances, of course, to score against Liverpool. Lost it late on. Um, you know, not saying that was a, an unfair result, but I don't think it was necessarily reflective of how Arsenal were playing. Same against West Ham to an extent. I think Fulham was the only really off-off day where nobody played well collectively. We were awful. Against West Ham, I think another day we, we score the goals that we need. But then there was the break. There was like two weeks of everyone talking about how we can't score goals. There was nothing else going on. And that was really the only topic of discussion. Mm. And look, this is a team that scored four against Luton, albeit you know they let three in. They scored six against Lons. Uh, five against Sheffield United, uh, four against Bournemouth, four against PSV. So there have been games where we have clicked from an attacking perspective. I just think we had a, a, a bad little period in form. And since we've come back, we've corrected a few things, put a few things right. And I think what we're seeing from Arsenal now is more reflective in general of what we've seen from Arsenal this season than that little short period where there was just hyper focus on us not being able to score. Yeah, interesting. Um, do you I, I do you have another true. theory? Uh, no, I, I think there are lots of little adjustments that have helped. I think starting games with the right level of intensity that that might be to do with physical or mental freshness, you know, forcing those early goals, I think is absolutely crucial. Sharpening set pieces, which again can help unlock games. Um, you know, I feel like around Christmas time, we were talking about, oh, you know, look at our XG and yet the ball's not end up in the net. Then you go to Burnley, put up like two, 2.5 in terms of XG and score five. You know, so mm. I, I think some of it is just kind of the vagaries of yeah. variance. But if you're looking for sort of rational um, or, or more tangible, maybe explanations, I do think that finishing is streaky. Yeah. And I really, really firmly believe that, you know, the last <laughs> big chance you had for most players affects the next one. And, you know, a player who's just scored is likelier to score their next chance for my money. Mm. And, uh, you know, the greatest example I can ever show you of that is Eddie Nketiah earlier in the season. Was it against Sheffield United? You know, he scored two goals in the game. When the ball comes to him 30 yards out, he turns on it and bangs it in the top corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if he'll ever do that again in his career. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I've certainly never seen it before. But that's what having two goals already in a game can do for your confidence in those situations. I would say Bukayo Saka quite possibly doesn't score that goal he did against Burnley if he hasn't scored the one he does against West Ham. You know, there is just something about having scored that gives you a freedom hmm. and a instinctiveness in those moments that I think is sort of impossible to generate. 
without form. Uh, so mm. I think the key was breaking the duck. Once we broke that duck, yeah, we were on our way. And I think we might look back and say, you know, we talk about those Gabriel Martinelli goals, putting the gloss on that Crystal Palace win. And I think that's true. But I wonder how important they might have been for our confidence and our belief to be a team, you know, for, to go from a team that won 3-0 and it was comfortable to a team that really hammered someone mm-hmm. 5-0 in our first game back. I wonder what sort of boost and belief that might have given to the group. Yeah. And I, we didn't really talk about him, but I actually, even though he didn't score, I thought Martinelli was fantastic mm. against Burnley. I thought he was just so, uh, so effective, um, you know, and, and tracking back and the work rate was, was superb. So those goals, you know, provide confidence. It was interesting to hear him talk during the week about how at the start of the season, he'd been carrying a bit of an injury um, and that's slightly affected his form. So he's looking looking to kick on from here. So, yeah, you're right. You know, it's sort of like a rolling stone gathering lots of moss um, once you get totally. going. Once you get going. We did have questions about goal scoring uh, from the Discord. Fahim underscore 786 says, Goodly morning. Uh, has all the outside talk of Arsenal needing a striker to win trophies given the players a kick up the backside in the last few weeks. It feels to me like they're proving the doubters wrong. And wise Mark Lara says, to what extent do you think the media narrative surrounding Arsenal needing a striker has impacted the attitude towards goal scoring and effectiveness in front of goal lately? It feels like we're playing with a bone to pick. Well, that's an interesting perspective. I like this from Adam Arthurs who said, 31 shots and only one goal. Do Man City need to sign a killer if they are to compete with free-scoring <laughs> Arsenal? Yeah. <laughs> it is interesting, you know, how the narrative can shape things. Um, I mean, look, I, I think it has become a bit of a trope, the centre-forward thing. Um, and it's a little bit uh, lazy. And I'm surprised it's been allowed to... I'm surprised it's been as a sort of popular a take as it has, given that we are sort of, I think, about two and a half years removed from Man City literally winning the league without playing a centre-forward. Um, is it, but isn't it just a natural consequence of, um, you know, when you don't score a few goals, everyone says, well, the solution to scoring goals is X, and it can only be X, and it does make sense. In its way, like, you know, if you can't score goals, you know what you need? A brilliant striker who can score lots of goals. Well, yeah. Why did nobody think of that? You know, but it is it is in its way a little bit simplistic. It's reductive. And listen, I've been on that bandwagon myself at hey, times this season. But, but yeah, gonna... that's it. Like, would, it's not that anyone would turn it down, but you have to be, you have to be realistic as to what, what – the solution is midway through a season when there is no realistic chance of bringing in that player. If that play, you know, that unicorn player that everybody wants, you know, you, you have to look at it differently. And I'm, I think Mikel Arteta has looked at it differently. Yeah. I mean, if you're a team that's conceding a load of goals and your solution was, I know I'll buy a goalkeeper. You'd say, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> that's only part of the job, yeah. you know? And I, th- I think the same is true at the other end of the pitch. It, it, it's not necessarily a panacea. It's not necessarily something that's going to fix 
everything. Um, but I, I, I think that basically what's required in the debate is a bit of nuance. You know, do Arsenal need another forward, ideally, who's a sort of penalty box presence and a, a good finisher and maybe gives more variety to the attack in a way that we're talking about the variety in the defensive options? Yes. Does that mean they can't win the league this season? Mm. Uh, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Yeah. Um, it, you know, we'll, we'll have to let it play out. I mean, if we do come up short, we'll probably all agree that that's something that would help, you know, or would have helped. It's kind of one of those that, you know, we've got to let it play out. But right now, we're scoring goals for fun. Yeah. And maybe there is that that sort of bit between the players' teeth, that little point to prove. I mean, the one who has the most to prove in that respect is Gabriel Jesus. And that's why we are getting questions like the one we opened part two with. You know, he is the guy who I think has it within himself to end that debate. But, but he has to deliver it, I think. For sure. Um, and I, I still have belief that he can do that in the second half of this season, that he can come back and score a lot of goals. But, you know, he needs to turn that page for sure. Yeah, he's got to come back first. Well, and yeah. then, you know, he's going to have to... The reality is he's going to have to fight his way back into the team to an extent. Mm. You know, because the, 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 the guys who've taken his place have stepped up and they have delivered. And they deserve if um, the manager feels like that's the right way to pick his team or, or you know, depending on who we're facing, who he might feel uh, is the best option or what the best tactical approach for the game is, if he sticks with, you know, the Havertz-Trossard thing for a while, then I think that's entirely fair enough. Um, you know, but I agree with you that, that Jesus is a player who... Um, who can deliver more and should deliver more for Arsenal. Um, what's and, he got? And, and that Havertz goal, by the way, I think that was his first goal of this little run. I think he, I think it'd been six games without a goal. So I think getting him back on the score sheet is important as well. Because, mm. you know, he has a presence, he can be a threat, um, and we're going to need that from him between now and the end. He's definitely a, he's definitely a confidence guy. Yeah. In maybe, a, you know, a way that other players aren't quite, you know, I think what we've seen this season is that that as his confidence has grown, he's been a more effective player. Um, so every little boost of confidence that he gets uh, can only be useful for him and for the team. So Yeah. And that confidence thing, you know, I spoke about it being very real and, you know, what a player's done with their last chance affects their next one. And I think that's broadly true. There are certain players who are immune to that and that's kind of their superpower. Mm. You know, certain great goal scorers, sometimes their greatest asset, their biggest attribute is their capacity to forget the last miss. Um, you know, the likes of an Erling Haaland, for example, he had a, a bit of a nightmare against Chelsea. Do I think that will continue into the next game? Absolutely not, because mm. he seems to have that kind of psychological capacity to put a miss to one side and focus on the next one. And maybe that is a trait that we do slightly lack in the squad, you know, and maybe this season has kind of proved that to an extent. But, yeah, we're not going to add it between now and the end of the season. So. No, no. 
Um, a couple of quick ones. Manu Lane said, I do not have a question per se, but my little cat Smudge is not doing very well and she could do with a big ass blog shout out. So shout out to Smudge the cat. Get well soon. Get well soon. And Bake said, is shouting Les Dudis acceptable as foreplay? Uh, yes, permission granted. There will be no legal repercussions. It's it's, it's acceptable, but how it goes down. Not advised. Yeah, I wouldn't advise it. Let me ask do you. Report, but do report back. Do report back, please. Um, no okay, pictures. here we go. This no is a bit of a different tack from okay. JCBR. And they say, not to be negative, but <laughs> I have been really disappointed by Nelson and Ketia over the last two games. Both have come on where we've been 6-0 and 5 up respectively, and neither have done anything to stand out, get a goal, or give Mikel anything to think about. I didn't mention it last weekend, but to see the same thing happen again this week was very disappointing. Do you guys feel similar? I don't feel that way, no. I don't feel disappointed. Like, it would be great if they could come on and 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 do something and contribute. I don't think it's that they didn't try. Mm. I think what we're seeing is sort of like... We're seeing squad evolution in a way where players who are capable of contributing what we need are playing more often. And I think the reality of, of players like Eddie Nketiah and Reese Nelson um, is that they're not quite at the, the same level as a Bakayo Saka or a Gabriel Martinelli or, mm. or even a Leandro Trossard. And it doesn't necessarily disappoint me. I mean, I think, and I hope that these guys have got a role to play between now and the end of the season. If they could chip in with a with a goal here or there, an assist here and there, it would be very, very useful. But for me, you know, going back to what we were talking about in the first half of the show, having these comfortable leads allows them playing time in a sort of non competitive way is that the right way of putting it i don't mean sure. i don't mean it like that but there's no the stakes are lower stakes are lower we're not necessarily depending on them like if we if we absolutely needed a goal against burnley on 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 saturday you know i wouldn't have a great deal of faith in eddie coming off the bench and getting a goal i know reese did it against Bournemouth and it's a moment that will live forever because it's just so magical but I wouldn't have a great deal of faith in him coming off the bench and, and contributing in that way so I'm not disappointed because I think I've already not made my peace with it but I kind of understand their level and what they're capable of does that make sense? Yeah it does I mean the thing is there will be a game where we need something off the bench. Yeah, for sure. Um, I suppose I'm just hoping that by that time we have enough players back that, you know, it might not be either of those players that we turn to. It could be Gabriel time. Jesus coming off the bench. Could be Gabriel Jesus. You know? Um, could be a Kai Havertz, you know, if mm -hmm. we set up the midfield slightly differently, if Partey's back or Jorginho's playing. Um, I just think it's it's key that we get some players back and effectively shift the pecking order a little sure. bit. Um, because I'm kind of with you. I do think, listen, Eddie's had 
some really good moments in an Arsenal shirt and Reese has had some good moments in an Arsenal shirt and one that will live forever, undoubtedly. But I do wonder if, you know, when we're talking about uh, some of these players in, in a few years' time, we will see that the contract renewals that were done with them were as much kind of accounting decisions based on what those players could do for our FFP position down the line as they were mm. talent decisions. I, I don't know, but that's something I've been wondering about in the last week. You know, the flexibility they will give us in terms of budget if we sell them at some point in time sure. is considerable. Yeah, maybe uh, so. Maybe so. Um, obviously, you can never, ever... The club can never say that and... Shouldn't know, say that. And shouldn't say that. Yeah. But I, you know, if Edu is doing his job properly and thinking about squad building in a kind of holistic way, then that has to be a factor. Mm. Well, we'll see. You know, the next transfer window... I think the the Enkedia thing is very interesting because of how um, how involved he was at the start of the season when Gabriel Jesus wasn't in the team. It was Eddie Enkedia starting, and now you know Eddie's on the bench. And if you go and look at his minutes, you know they're dwindling and dwindling throughout the season. I think you know that that comes to a natural conclusion um, for him and for the club. And you know he he will want to play and go somewhere and play. Same with Reese Nelson. It's just a question of what the club can bring in and who's out there willing to put up the money for them. And, you know, if if they can raise, you know, uh, 20, 30 million, maybe more between them, then it could be it could be very useful for Arsenal in the transfer window come the summer. Um, but I think what we're seeing from a footballing perspective is that, you know, if we've talked about this team evolving beyond players like Kieran Tierney, I think we're seeing it evolve beyond players like Nelson and Enkedia, you know, who were never um, obvious first team picks anyway, the way Tierney was. But I, I think we're in that sort of ballpark uh, a little bit too. Let me ask you this one from Queen Gunner at So Far. And she says, I know Gunners who think Martin, over, uh, Martin Odegaard is overrated. Martin Overgaard. Um, and they say he only plays well against poor teams. I show them the stats that this is not the case, but they're still not having it. I think he's outstanding and don't understand their view. Do you understand them? That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I had one here from Martinelli the Elephant, which said, do you think Odegaard gets the props he deserves from the wider media? And why doesn't he? Um, I, listen, I, I, I really, really love Martin Odegaard as a player. I think he's excellent. And actually, I, I think he does get quite a lot of appreciation in the wider media. You know, whenever I'm watching an Arsenal game, I'll always hear the commentator sort of wax lyrical about mm. Odegaard's ability. Um, as for the point about Arsenal fans saying he only does it, you know, against the smaller teams, I'd have to look at the numbers, to be honest with you. I'll take Queen Gunnar's word for it that she's done that already. Um, inevitably, you're going to affect some of those big games less, right? It's just sure. more difficult. You know, this isn't, not every game is Burnley or West Ham. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think he's so important and so good. I think there are very, very, very few players 
in the world who have his kind of technical ability and tactical intelligence. Mm -hmm. Uh, What about you? I mean, I think if you can't see how good a player Martin Odegaard is, I don't know what you're watching. Mm. Genuinely, I don't know what you're watching. Um, I think he's been brilliant since the break. I know if you're measuring by pure numbers, I think he's got three assists and a goal in these five games. But he could have had many more assists, you know. He definitely could have. He's created like no player has played more passes into the penalty box, not including set pieces this season, than Martin Odegaard. No, no player in the Premier League, not just at Arsenal. Um, I think his numbers don't look as good as they should because we have fluffed our lines in front of goal a bit too often. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think he's a fantastic player. He played the full 90, 100 minutes, whatever it was, because there was that stoppage for the injury. And he's still running and he's still chasing and he's still sprinting. And he, he sets the tone for this team, set the tone with a goal. But... If you look at your captain and you look at how hard he works, you know. Yeah, he covered more ground than any other player on the pitch, I believe. Yes. About 12 kilometres or something. And I would Um, say that's not for the first time this season as well. No, no. Like the work he does off the ball as well in terms of regaining it, you know, pressing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's it's difficult to find fault with him. Uh, I think more decisive moments, you know, in big games could still be to come. You know, again, we forget. I know he's so experienced because he started so young, but he's he's still a guy who's kind of entering his prime period. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of what he does is exemplary. And in terms of his kind of wider perception, when is he going to be lauded like a De Bruyne? I think the answer is the same as it is for everybody at Arsenal, when they win, mm. you know. It's so interesting. I, we've not, obviously, this week... Uh, the celebration police have been nice and quiet, um, I suppose, because Arsenal have kind of, you know, made their point by just carrying on winning. But I was watching uh, the overlap, you know, the oh, yeah, yeah. Gary Neville um, podcast with Jamie Carragher mm-hmm. and Roy, Roy Keane, Ian Wright, yeah. Jill Scott, yeah. And uh, they were talking about Pep and... I think Gary Neville said one of the great things about Pep is, you know, they beat, it was something like they beat Burnley the other week and he was celebrating it like it was his first league win. (laughs) And I was like, yeah. So that's in him, that's cause for praise. Mm. But in Arteta, it's cause for concern. And the only difference, and it's a big difference, is that one manager has won the big prizes and the other hasn't. And when you do that, your foibles, your idiosyncrasies become lauded as your strengths. And that that's literally the difference. Yeah. And it, it's the difference for the manager and it's difference for some of these players as well. Yeah. Okay. What was I going to ask you? Um, I don't know. I've got one here, uh, which is from uh, Aidan Kabaddi. Okay. And he says, "Goodly morning to you all." Uh, but does Gunnerblog still believe we will win something this year? As he said at the beginning of the season, <laughs> basically a lot of people have been asking this. They have, and, yeah. I had that. I pulled that one out actually. Yeah, I don't want to seem like I'm dodging it. Do you know what I mean? 
Um, do I still? They were asking it after the defeat to West Ham and Fulham and all sorts, you know, as well. Mm. Do I still believe it? I the reason that the things that gave me cause to say it are all still there. I said it because these kind of very lean, ruthless, efficient teams win trophies historically. And I think that is what we are. I know we are scoring goals aplenty right now, but it's our efficiency, our organisation, our control that made me say that back in August or September or whatever it was. Um, the problem is we're out of two competitions. And personally, I, I do feel that absence really keenly. Like, I know there are people who say, I don't care about the FA Cup. I don't care about the Carabao Cup. I understand that perspective. But you've got to win trophies. Um, and, you know, eras of teams are relatively short. And mm. I, I feel like we let two opportunities let them go is maybe an exaggeration. We went out the FA Cup to Liverpool. It can happen. But, you know, if we were still in four competitions right now, I'd be saying, yeah, we'll win one. Mm. Um, but we're not. We're in two and Man City are in both of them and are probably favourites for both of them. Um, I'm going to say... <laughs> I'm going to say, yeah. I mean, basically... I still think we're as we look as much of a winning team as we did when I said that, if not more so. It's more difficult now because two of the easier competitions are, are off the table. But we still have all the hallmarks right now of a winning team. If we keep playing like this until May, mm -hmm. I think we'll win something. Well, I agree. I mean, I think it's a big if. It is a big if. It's about consistency. But I agree with you that the hallmarks of a, a team that wins things uh, are there defensively and offensively Yeah. for all the talk about strikers. Like we, we've got great goal difference. Only one team has scored more goals than Arsenal in the Premier League this season. That's Liverpool. And no team has conceded fewer goals than Arsenal. That's what you need. Now, whether we can um, fight off two very, very good experienced teams to win the title, I don't know. But mm. I believe we are a team that can compete for the title. I don't know if we'll win it. Nobody can predict that, really, you know? Um, I, I probably, on, it sounds mad, but I probably fancy us more for the Champions League. Yeah, I've heard that, I've heard that uh, said and had that discussion yeah. as well, yeah. Um, just because I think mm. City in the Premier League... Basically, in the Champions League, there's there's a route to winning it where you can avoid City. <laughs> I think it's quite unlikely, but it's possible. It is possible. Yeah, you can't avoid uh, Man City in the Premier League. No, they are so. inevitable in some respects. But yeah, I, I, this looks like a winning team to me. Um, and if they don't, either they've collapsed or you know, completely lost form, as they did, to be honest, in the last period of last season. So either that's happened again, or they've been beaten by a team that is utterly exceptional. Yeah, just that little bit better. It was quite. I was quite taken aback actually on um, watching match of the day the other night, and at the end of the Arsenal game, or maybe it was midway through, the commentator said, "You know, after Arsenal choked 
last season. I thought that was really unfair. I have to say, I thought it was unfair. I think there were two very obvious reasons why we 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 didn't win the title. You know, and those were the injuries to Saliba and and Tommy Asu happening in the same game. Uh, and I think that was far more um, influential in the way the title turned out than than a lack of metal or bottle or character or whatever you want to call it. Um, but hopefully we are we are better set up to um, to go to the distance this time. Uh, let's do a couple of quick ones just to finish. We had some questions about Sambi. Um, Yolius yeah. uh, said, goodly tidings, good chaps. Just seen Sambi boss it for Luton. Does he have a future at Arsenal or are we feeling this loan move is a, a shop window? And the same question more or less uh, was asked by uh, undamaged Panda Gunner. Uh, which is a great name on the Discord. <laughs> um, right, so f- confession, I've barely seen him for Luton. Like, I didn't watch the United game. Uh, and, yeah, I- I've not had the opportunity to yeah. watch. I-, I didn't watch that game either, but Rob Edwards, before the game, was talking very highly about um, oh. about him and, and what? No, no, no. I was saying, uh, yeah, I-, I, oh. know, I know he's been doing well. I just don't, haven't seen him in the like myself you mm. know, with my own eyes. Yeah, Rob Edwards has been full of praise for him. He's really enjoying it from what I hear, Sambi. Um, feels like he's playing his best football for a while. Mm-hmm. And Luton have had some really good performances in that period as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't, to be honest, I don't think it has many consequences for Arsenal other than that it may mean a better fee for him when he goes I I still think that he'll be sold to be honest with you I agree with that but uh, if he's playing well for Luton good it's good to see him do well and if it means Arsenal get some more money in for him in the summer I think that's probably the the best outcome uh, for all concerned um but yeah after some injury problems you know it's good to see him doing well rob edwards said i love him he's amazing so he's basically uh to rob edwards what kai havertz is to uh, michael arteta (laughs) a player that he just absolutely loves yeah Um, and what about this i enjoyed this master johnbury says are you suddenly finding the Bundesliga more enjoyable than ever before this year? <laughs> I will admit that I'm watching just as much Bundesliga now as I ever did. Yeah, sure. Well, listen, I'd be delighted for Granite if they could get over the yeah. line, especially given what happened last season where it looked like he might sign off at Arsenal with a title. Um, yeah, it'd be great this year. Imagine if they yeah. Shaka could win it in Germany and... And Arsenal could win it. Arsenal could win it in England. Yeah, exactly. Shake off the, um, I don't know what you call it, the sort of one team dominance uh, that exists or has existed in in the Premier League for longer than it should have, uh, to be honest. Crucially, stop Harry Kane winning something. And, of course, um, if he does get the golden boot, the trophy is a giant cannon. You saw that, I'm sure. Yeah, I did see that. Amazing. Wouldn't that be amazing? Harry Kane goes to, to Germany and the only trophy that he wins while playing for Bayern Munich is a giant cannon. I mean, yeah. You couldn't you have write to it. You couldn't write it. What about this? Ben White's eyebrows. 
He says, have we all been pronouncing Mikel, uh, Mikel Arteta's surname wrong? And has Gary Lineker finally revealed the truth that we've all been missing? This is Gary Lineker on Match of the Day on Saturday night after Arsenal's 5-0 win over Burnley. And after the game, I spoke to the Arsenal manager, Mikel Arteta. Arteta. Mm, interesting. Arteta. We're missing a trick the whole time. Yeah. Well... You know, he spent time in Spain, Lineker. Who are we to question his judgment? Well, you've got to pronounce every Spanish name that way then forever. Right. You know, you've got to commit to the whole bit. Can't just... Can't, can't just pick, and pick and choose your pronunciations. Yeah. You can't have an Arteta and a Bellerin. You've got to have a Bellerin and an Arteta. Arteta. <laughs> anyway. By the way, we mm. shouldn't let the pod go by without... Uh, congratulating the Arsenal women on not just their win at the weekend, but their record attendance. Yes, well. amazing. I was watching that game on um, on Sunday. Okay, uh, Saturday it was, yeah. They played Saturday lunchtime. Yeah, Saturday, yeah. So I was watching that. What was the other game on Saturday lunchtime? Liverpool. Liverpool, that's right. So I was flicking uh, around a bit and then turned off the Liverpool game. Uh, to watch the Arsenal women. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, wasn't it? 60-odd 60, uh, 60 thousand sellout crowd. Yeah. 3-1 win. A little bit of a switch off at the end there for the United goal, which can happen, I guess. Made for a good start to the weekend. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, um, yeah, hopefully they can uh, hopefully they can close the gap on Chelsea and, um, you know, get back to winning ways because it's been a difficult few weeks uh, for the team and for Jonas Eidevold. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, good to see. All right. Well, look, we will leave it there. Join us a bit later on this afternoon over on Patreon for a look back at all the weekend's Premier League action in an episode of The 30. You can join myself and Phil for that. We'll talk to you a bit later in the week. Of course, there is Champions League action. We'll preview that for you on Patreon as well. And we'll probably have a podcast on Thursday, a sort of post-match podcast for you on Thursday as well. Uh, So lots going on. In the meantime, take it easy, folks, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.